0: So remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is, this is found in a lot of places actually within our Christian faith and our tradition. But one of the, one of the most common places it's found is on Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is a time that certain traditions will take ashes, and they come, you come up forward, and they take ashes, and you can use your forehead or the back of your hand, and they draw a cross on it in ashes and say. This line here, remember that you are dust into dust you shall return. Remember that you are dust into dust you shall return. So I'm going to go around today and do this. Remember that you are dust into dust you shall return. And I've chosen ashes that don't really stick well. <laughs> Just for those of you that didn't want to get too hurt. Remember that you are dust into dust you shall return. Remember that you are dust into dust you shall
1: return. This is also
0: saying, remember that you are dust. We also hear these during many Christian burial services. And it will come from the Book of Common Prayer, and it reads like this. We are mortal, formed of the earth, and unto earth we shall return. For so thou didst ordain when thou created us, saying, dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. All we go down to the dust. Now this is of course a reference, a general reference, to the words God spoke to Adam after he sinned in the Garden of Eden. Now. I know on the surface of this, this language is so seemingly full of finality, of end, of so much witness to the seeming futility of man. We are born, we live but a fleeting moment, and we die. And as such, the language is almost full of despair, which may be the reason that so many modern traditions within Christianity have abandoned these words in this language, right? Maybe this is why a lot of contemporary denominations no longer celebrate the practice of Ash Wednesday or the observance of All Saints Day. But maybe that is because we have never considered the possibility that allowing us to return to dust may have been the first great act of saving grace from God to us. You see, this whole idea of dust to dust might, in the final analysis, contain the very essence, the very mystery, the very, what C.S. Lewis calls, the deeper magic of resurrection. Let me try to explain. When these events following Adam and Eve's fall are freed from some of the restraints that a typical disconnected contextual reading of Scripture can can leave us with. When we read Scripture disconnectedly from itself, we then end up with a very disjointed understanding of God, a disconnected understanding of God. But when we can free them from that, I believe these words are filled with incredible beauty, and this scene is one of the most glorious scenes in Scripture. You see, when we understand God in a disjointed way, when we read scripture out of context with itself, God then is both a <coughs> hater and a lover of humanity. And then passages like this can be often be framed in light of God's supposed hatred for us, and then they can truly lack beauty. Likewise, when passages like this are read without context, with no connection to the greater story of scripture... We can be left with feelings of despair and finality instead of hope and eternity. But here's the thing the overriding narrative of Scripture is that God is a lover of mankind, an unconditional, relentless, full of grace lover of mankind. And His love of us has nothing to do with us. And I'm sorry, that's offensive to us that love to be on the th- God and on the throne. We love to be loved because we're good. But I'm sorry, that's not the narrative of Scripture. The narrative of Scripture is good or bad, right or wrong, beautiful or ugly, kind or mean, the right church or not, God loves us. Because He is a God of love. That's the narrative of Scripture. And you can find plenty of references. I'm just going to give a few. Okay? But and, and believe me, I'm not just picking out a couple verses here and there to support what I'm saying. I just I don't have time to go through the entire scriptures. Alright? So I'm just giving you a few here. John, Saint John, God is love. That's a very powerful one. We have a couple here from Corinthians. God, love never fails. God is love, therefore God never fails. But God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners. So see that right there just absolutely destroys the theology that if we do the right thing or say the right thing or believe the right thing, God loves us and everyone else he hates. Because none of us are in the right place when he decided that he would die for us. And then this, this is one of my favorites. I am convinced that nothing, I just shortened it. Because he says, nor anything else in all creation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. This is one of those verses when people embrace theologies that need loopholes. This is one of those verses they just ignore. Be- because th- there's always something that makes God hate you. No, No, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. This is this incredible narrative of Scripture. St. Peter, not wanting anyone to perish. God doesn't want anyone to perish. Why? Because he loves all of us, regardless of us. He loves us. Jeremiah, the ancient prophet, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. We use language a lot in our human relationships. Everlasting, yeah, that that doesn't often (laughs) ever last, right? That's, maybe that's why we use it. It's everlasting no. uh, And unfailing, no, we fail all the time, right? So I think that we look at that and say, yeah, see, sometimes God doesn't love. No, no, everlasting for God is everlasting, and unfailing is unfailing. So those are some powerful ones. Now, I'm aware. Oh, and then, of course, the classic from Jesus himself, God in the flesh among us. So... I'm aware there are other metaphors and stories throughout the Bible that do not always at first read, suggest a loving God. I understand that. But if the cross is the pinnacle of God's revelation to us, if it is, of who he is and what he is like, and we just saw in one of those scriptures that he died on the cross because he loves us, then we are probably closer to the truth of a biblical text when we are reading it within a uniform understanding of God as love and a lover of humanity, and reading it within the context of the greater story that God always acts to save us because he loves us. And this is one of the most important pieces of reading scripture. And you know, we we, we, as a community tried to read through the Bible in 2017. If you didn't finish, you got 2018. So keep going. And we've talked a lot about getting involved in the scriptures because that's what we claim to believe. Not to be a good Christian, not to get a gold star, not to win arguments, not to be better than the person sitting next to you. That's not why we read the Bible. And not because if you don't read the Bible, God's mad. Nope, stop, forget all of those ideas. We read the Bible to know what we believe, to know the story. And one of the central, 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 the most important guidelines for reading any individual passage of Scripture is to ask the question, how, what is this telling us about the greater story? And unfortunately, at least when I was a young man, the way I was presented how to read the Bible was to take the individual pieces and then try to build the big story. And boy, does that lead you down a whole bunch of rabbit holes. Because now you can say to me, oh no, it says right here, God loved Jacob and hated Esau. See, he hates. (laughs) I'm not at all convinced that's what that means. But when you go to any individual text, and, you, and, and we try to come up with what should we do in 2017, what should we do about this issue? And so you find little, little places in Scripture that seem to maybe help us. You have to go and say, first question is, what is this telling us about the great story? And the great story is God loves us because he died for us. Okay? So let's go to our text with asking about the great story, God's purpose in the world, God's mission in the world to save us. So let's look at this then. When we look at this that way, we can come to a different conclusion here than one of despair and finality. A conclusion that I suggest, this is all about resurrection. For here's the question, what does God do with dust? And some of you are shaking your heads because you know, because you've read this story. But you forget that part before you get to this part. And you take this part out of the story. Put the story together. This is what God does with dust. He breathes life into it. Remember that you are dust. And to dust you shall return. God knew at this point, right here, we were separated from him by our choice. Not his. We chose. That's why he was in the garden looking for us. That's why he was running after us. If this was his choice, he would have been done with it all and started again. Our choice, we were separated from him. His love for us would not tolerate that. So acting as any loving parent would, whose children are faced with imminent danger, and we're we're a mess as parents, he's a perfect parent, he acted swiftly and decisively. First thing he does, he announces, we shall return to dust. That's a great announcement. And then... He quickly removes us from the Garden of Eden. Why? So we can't get to the tree of life. This is pure love. Had we eaten from the tree of life in our fallen state, we would have been damned for all eternity. Immortal, yet separated from God. But God knew there would be another tree of life from which we could eat and have real eternal life not separate, but together with God. What a beautiful passage of Scripture. So, this is a raging God. Don't get me wrong. He's raging here, but he's raging to protect us from eternal damnation, not to condemn us to eternal damnation. See what a difference little stories in Scripture can have when they're read in the context of the great narrative that God loves us. So allowing us to return to dust is a saving grace. Obviously, these bodies we have die. But in being dust again, God breathes new life into us. Remaking us, as St. Paul said, with imperishable bodies. And so I think this is why St. Paul said, we do not need to be afraid to live. Paul knew death seemed to still be in control after the cross. We know that, right? And evil continues to carry on, seemingly unabated, across our world. But we do not need to live in that shadow anymore because it has been defeated. We can face our pain, we can face our sorrows. With real anguish, there's nothing wrong with real anguish. We can face our pain and our sufferings, our sorrow, with real cries of, my God, why? Because contrary to what certain people say about doubt, (laughs) doubt is a beautiful part of faith. Our own God incarnate cried out, why? Then why shouldn't we? But here is the difference We can face them without despair, without hopelessness, without retreat. Because no matter how dark it gets, it's not the end of the story. Death loss. As Christopher Rodkey says, Resurrection gives us the opportunity to step out of our tombs. I love that. And to help us and to help others in coming into the light outside their tombs. We must proclaim that the resurrection of Christ is our resurrection too. I think this is what St. Paul is getting at here when he says this. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. What is that work? I think that work is telling this world this amazingly beautiful story. That death lost, life wins. And no matter what our circumstances are, sharing that story by loving others. You know, because I was a product of the 70s I, and I grew up in a, in a branch that sort of embraced Hal Lindsey <laughs> and then the world didn't end, Russia ended before the world ended and I got so sick of Revelation I wouldn't talk about it or read it and then years later when I was understanding, starting to understand this bigger beautiful story that the Bible says, now I love Revelation because at the end of it, who wins? The good guys. How can you love Revelation? Who cares what it means? The good guys win. Who cares what the timing is? I don't care. I just love to read it. Yay! Love wins. It's a beautiful book. This is a story we need to tell. Last night, we were the McCrell's. It's a devastating time in Sarah's life. Mom just found out she has a horrible form of cancer. So what do you... You don't say anything. You just... Keep reminding her that love wins. Life will win. It will. Rodkey, again, really love this one. Because we do not live in death, we can meet our friends who are determined to live in their caves or tombs and invite them outside of their caves and meet their needs. We can seek those who are poor and mourning and downtrodden and we can feed them, we can comfort them, and we can work to dismantle the powers that hold them in chains. And in doing so, we teach and proclaim that now it is spring and a new creation is blossoming all around us. And there is no longer any need to stay indoors in our caves and hibernate. hibernate. As a resurrection people, it's our job to stand by the tomb and proclaim that we have seen the resurrection. Oh, I love that. It's like that picture that I had up for communion. Which I've shown a lot over the years. I, came, I just love that. Harbingers of resurrection. Now, here's the thing. I absolutely know this would be a lot easier if we could just skip the returning to dust bit. <laughs> I totally get that. If we could just go right past that. And we and our loved ones didn't need to return to dust. I get it. But sadly, our insistence on being God ended that possibility, and so we now must return to dust. But God himself in the incarnate as one of us traveled that path, and he will travel it with us and with our loved ones. So while the truth of resurrection does not miraculously take away all our pain and our sufferings and our sorrows, It doesn't bring our loved ones back to us in the flesh the way we would want them right now. It does give us a whole new perspective and a courage and strength to live into life. As the current Archbishop of Canterbury said, resurrection is offered to the world not to guarantee a permanently happy society in the sense of a society free from tension, pain, or disappointment, but to affirm that whatever happens in the unpredictable world, there is a deeper level of reality, a world within the world where love and reconciliation and resurrection are ceaselessly at work, a world with which contact can be made so that we are able to live honestly and courageously with the challenges constantly thrown at us. And that is an apt description of living in this world challenges constantly thrown at us, isn't it? It's incredible. I don't know if it's because I'm getting older or if things are changing, but it is just constant. Just when you think, okay, we got over that one. It, nope. That's why the singular hope we have in resurrection. As we embrace resurrection living, we, then be, we become the harbingers of resurrection living for others. So E.B. White, E.B. White, Dave knows who E.B. White is. His wife, Catherine, was a Christian, and when she died, he wrote this of her, one of my favorite things. I've shared this before, and I've shared this with Dave, I know, more than once. I just love this. This is what he wrote of his wife. He said, Catherine was a member of that resurrection conspiracy, the company of those who plant seeds of hope under dark skies. Ugh. To believe in Christ is to be a member of that society. And that is the work of God. To love others by planting seeds of hope beneath the darkness. We can't solve each other's problems. We can't fix each other's messed up lives. We can't cure people of cancer. But boy, can we sow seeds of hope. Even when the clouds are covering the sky and everything is dark. We are mortal, formed of the earth, and unto earth we shall return. For so thou didst ordain when thou createdst us, saying, dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. All we go down to the dust. But here's the rest of that reading. Yet even at the grave, we make our song. Alleluia, alleluia.